This paid podcast is a partnership between Slate Studios and Century 21 Real Estate. All uses of trademarks or brands are not meant to convey sponsorship or affiliation of this podcast. From Century 21, this is The Relentless, a podcast about looking at sales differently. As entrepreneurs, we need to constantly evolve, refresh our approach, and these days, that means prioritizing the customer. Because sales is about so much more than transactions. It's about elevating experiences. I'm Kristen Meinzer. I'm an author, entrepreneur, and podcast host. And no matter what job I've had, I've always used my voice to help people. I learned early on that treating people like they matter isn't just the right thing to do. It also makes for good business and great relationships. And that's what this season is all about. We're talking to the visionaries reinventing hospitality and the pioneers who figured out how to create celebrations that don't feel like work. Because The Relentless is about more than the clothes. It's about opening our minds to new possibilities and crushing mediocrity every step of the way. It's time to dream big, embrace change, and stay relentless. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Relentless. I can't believe we are wrapping up the season. I've learned so much from our guests through all of the ways they prioritize their customers, from small touches like handwritten notes to grand gestures like paying for a customer's moving expenses. So I set out to find guests for today's show that epitomize this expertise. My first guest today is celebrated as a serial entrepreneur, author, podcaster, and investor, Gary Vaynerchuk, better known as Gary V. How you interact with people, how they feel about you, I think it's the emotional strength inside to have the ability to be the bigger person in every interaction because you're in a good place. I think these are the things that business owners and entrepreneurs are gonna really need to lean into more and more. About 15 years ago, he transformed his parents' wine store into the wildly profitable online retailer, Wine Library. Gary Vee kept building on that success. Today, he is the chairman of VaynerX and CEO of VaynerMedia and the author of five best-selling books. His brand new book is called 12 and a Half, Leveraging the Emotional Ingredients Necessary for Business Success. Gary Vee, welcome to The Relentless. Thank you for having me. I got to say, also, I love your book Thank right you. here. Have it in front of me. Thank you. <laughs> it, it was such a joy to read. And you're already a best-selling author. You've written five New York Times best-selling books. And now in your latest book, 12 and a Half, you focus on the emotional ingredients necessary for business success, which is not often at the forefront in terms of business strategy. How would you define emotional intelligence in the business sense and the way you lay it out in the book? You know, I think the business world is viewed in an aggressive fashion, you know, like got to have sharp elbows, got to be a tough negotiator, don't be a pushover. If you're too kind, people take advantage of you. And I find that in business, there isn't enough conversation around the alpha-ness around kindness or the imperative that is self-awareness or realizing that it's your insecurities that are leading you to mismanage. And so I, I always knew that there was good things going on with me professionally. And I was always kind of not perplexed, but it was funny to me 
and interesting to me that my soft skills, that I was nice, that I was patient, that I, but, but I also did a lot of interesting contradictions, incredibly ambitious, yet believe in patience so much and use those two together, right? I really believe in accountability. I think accountability is not being talked enough about, period. I think accountability really lends itself to a lot more happiness. So in general, I think the enjoyment at work is at a low and can be so much greater. I think leaders can build much bigger businesses with kinder, softer traits. And I think that it's time that we have that conversation in the business world. And was there a specific experience that led you to make emotional intelligence a priority in business and in entrepreneurship specifically? No, this was, you know, honestly a culmination of feelings, right? Like, um, you know, I think going through COVID, you know, just being so out there over the last half decade, especially hundreds of thousands of emails and DMs and messages, reading a lot of them, you know, a lot of people see me yapping all the time, but the reality is I'm much more in consuming mode 90% of the time. It's why I have good early observations, all my investing thesis and being right about trends, but it also has allowed me to tap into what I'm seeing out there. And what I'm seeing is, for example, I'm seeing cynicism, be careful, watch out, they're bad. I see cynicism on the offense. I don't see optimism on the offense. And I believe optimism is imperative for business growth, right? And then really, I'm incredibly passionate about self-awareness. The book almost probably took a tack of just being a self-awareness book. So much good happens when you're conscious to your strengths and your weaknesses, but you don't demonize your weaknesses. So I really wanted to get these 13 traits out. I wanted to be vulnerable. You know, I called it 12 and a half instead of 13 because kind candor is ironically something I've struggled with. So I'm incredibly candorous in my public persona on interviews like this, on stage. But as a leader, I really struggled in giving one-to-one negative feedback or critical feedback. I was always scared that it would scare the person too much and make them think they're about to get fired. And I took too extreme of a view on that in the first 20 years of my career. And my lack of candor really hurt me when we would have to fire someone. And then once I rebranded it to myself as the concept of kind candor, it really took off for me and has become a huge topic in my organization about you can be kind in delivering candor. I felt that you know people used the word candor as an opportunity to um, be mean, get some frustration out. And so it was important for me to rebrand that in my own brain and in my own organization. I talk about that quite a bit in the book. I'm curious to get your hot take. Was there anything that stood out in the book that was even a deeper aha or anything that really caught your attention? I just was so grateful that you were so honest with your own mistakes and shortcomings. I feel that a lot of people in the influencer space or the business book space, they spend a lot of time scolding. They spend a lot of time Mm. trying to lay out key metrics, you know, KPIs and so on. And I feel that what is so good about your book is you are saying, this is how I screwed up. When I wasn't practicing kind candor, what I was doing was actually practicing conflict avoidance. And because of that, I 
I was pushing people away. I, I was essentially forcing somebody to quit. It's kind of like the bad boyfriend stereotype exact, of like the, your your yeah. high school boyfriend. Like he doesn't have the you know uh, spine to actually speak up and say like, oh, this is really not working or this or that. So I'm just going to drive you away or I'm going to dump you rather than talk about our challenges. It's a hundred percent what I was doing professionally for for a long, long time, and um, and it and I appreciate you calling it out as you know. I, I I think it's important. What's so funny is candor, such a challenge, accountability, a piece of cake, and you would think they're kind of connected, but it's the ease of accountability that makes me understand how hard candor was for me because it was incredibly easy for me to say this is my fault, but on a one to one basis. I had the misunderstanding that giving people feedback would put them into a fear mode. But it's it's a fearful place, and you talk about this in your book, to not know, like, oh, I, I, the feedback you gave me was so vague because you didn't want to just give me straight feedback, and now I'm running around the office, like, in a state of fear because I don't know how to do better because my boss, Gary, mm-hmm. just didn't come right out and tell me what I need to do. He was just vague with me. Yeah, I, 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 I wish, I wish I was even vague. I wouldn't even go there. <laughs> really, Kristen, I wouldn't even, I didn't even in my early days. Later, I got better, but you know, couldn't even go there. It was really a game of everything's good, everything's good, everything's good. Hey, Kristen, can you come to my office? Hey, this is not working out. And you know, I have a very high tolerance for employees, and so it would take someone being a D or an F, you know, executive, executor, worker, to get into that danger zone. So what I would do, and especially in my 20s later I matured, was I would be almost upset at them for not realizing, you know, how bad they were doing. And so I thought naively that I was eliminating fear. In my 30s, when I started realizing this was a problem, really late 30s, really even until five or six years ago, I was like, ah, this is a problem. And, th- and that's why I hope when people read the book, if candor doesn't come easy to you, fine. I, humility, you know, it doesn't come easy to some leaders, right? Um, you know, gratitude, people struggle with it. And so a lot of people listening will have a lot of haves mm-hmm. and that's okay because once you become at least aware of it, you're in the process of having a chance to address it. And I also love that about your book. You see what other people might call... Uh, faults or shortcomings, and you see them as something to be grateful for. Like, oh, here's this thing I can improve on is kind of how you frame it in your book. Like, and I might never be 100% at it, but I can look at this thing as an opportunity to learn, to enlist my curiosity, to get better at it. And as you just said, maybe you'll never be 100% at it, but that's, you know, a, a very different mindset. You're saying, maybe I'll never get there, but I get the opportunity to try and that's a great thing. You don't see that as a, as a bad thing. I think a lot of people may take the tack that the concept of some of these traits is not practical. I, on the other hand, see it as the ultimate strength. I think many people don't realize the classic business traits that we talk about are actually major shortcomings. And I, I wish that people were more comfortable leaning into the great traits that they have. It's almost like people feel they have to take their good and leave it at the door when they walk into the business world because it's rough out there. And I actually think those weapons are the ultimate weapons in the roughness. Mm. 
This season on The Relentless, our primary focus has been on prioritizing the customer. And emotional intelligence is such a key component to providing that level of hospitality, it seems. What's one surprising way emotional intelligence plays into the way you, Gary, and your team go above and beyond prioritizing your customers? The reason I named my wine brand Empathy is empathy has been my superpower my whole life. I I naturally was gifted with it. My mother nurtured it. And then I became an entrepreneur that sold to people. Lemonade stands, ringing doorbells and shoveling snow, washing cars, baseball card shows, and then working in a retail environment in a liquor store. All of it, the greatest aspect of hospitality is empathy. If you are able to actually feel the situation, well, then you can address it. And I've always championed that conversation, that trait. I think about Brandon Warnicky, who runs Wine Library now, was my best friend since I was 14 years old. You know, when I think about from 14 to 25, the shocking amount of conversations we had around the customers first, and then, and then my favorite part, but is it really actually it's the employees are first, which lets you scale customers mm. being first. Oh, interesting. So this, yes. I think a great mistake that many make is they choose their customer over their employee. And I think the way to actually answer your question is to actually start with the empathy on the employee level. That if you've always got your employees back, the employee is no longer fearful of the customer and is able to be in a much better state and framework to deliver what we're looking for for the customer. I do believe it's empathy. And I do believe for a lot of people who are listening, remember that if you make employee first, customer second, you third, then you will win. And that's been a very tried and true model. Now, across the universes of social media, marketing, and business, you have a huge following. But one space in particular is with real estate entrepreneurs. Can you elaborate on your special connection to real estate? I think real estate agents were very early on in understanding that social media might help them. They were accustomed more than many other industries to build personal brand. They were accustomed to put their face on a bench. They were accustomed to buy a billboard. They were accustomed to send direct mail with them in their best outfit. And so I think they were attracted to me and I to them because I love selling stuff. And I understood the concept of selling yourself to somebody believe in you, to then be able to sell their home, do a good job for them. I love selling long-term. I'm so not transactional. So I like the real estate industry because I realized the real winners were always delivering a lot of value because then it became word of mouth. So there was always this kinship. And then it supercharged three or four years ago when my sister decided to transition from being a teacher to being a stay-at-home mom to becoming a real estate agent. And that kind of made it even more fun for me because obviously I love her more than anything and cheer for her. And she's my younger sister. And gave me a little even extra oomph in the way I saw that uh, arena. But I, I think that it comes down to a category of people that realized content mattered a little bit sooner than others and an arena that is completely, completely predicated on reputation. And I like those businesses the best. Mm. And for real estate agents out there who want to become more effective communicators, what advice do you have for them? First, self-awareness. You have to go with self-awareness because if you have to know what kind of communicator you are. It's okay if you don't like video. And, you know, as somebody who's really won on video, 
I don't think what's worked for me should work for everybody. So if you don't love video, well, then maybe you can do audio and then post that audio as a describer. Then there's also photos, right? For example, ironically, even though I'm on the verge of being a six-time New York Times bestselling author, the way I write my books is through talking because that's my greatest communication strength. So I always have a ghostwriter structuring with me and I record literally this entire book verbatim is on video of me sitting on my couch here and talking it through. Mm. And so that's my process. I'm not embarrassed that I can't write. I'm, I'm thankful that I can speak. And I think for everybody's listening, everyone's got a different thing. Maybe you are comfortable taking a nice photo in front of a house and then you're a great writer, a photo accompanied by a very long description often does incredibly well. People don't think that way. They think everything's fast and short, but you post a photo and write, you know, five incredible paragraphs about the neighborhood, the school system, and the amenities of that home. That might be the post that gives you a stronger open house. You know, I think for a lot of people, they overthink things. They think that there's rules. The rules are being comfortable in your own skin and finding the platforms that allow you to most communicate to create the business or life results you're looking for. And for you, the platform is, you know, way ahead of the curve before a lot of other people was the internet. You took your father's local wine shop and grew it into a $60 million business, the wine library, which you already mentioned. I'm curious, what potential did you see in the internet as a way to grow that business at a time when most of us didn't have computers at home? I didn't have a computer at home. Uh, I saw that my intuition said people were going to do this. It was as simple as that. And by the way, that has been my whole career. People are going to use the internet. What I'm very good at is seeing things when they're launched, watching the first group of people interact with it and understand if that's going to be a scaled activity. And so what I saw in 95 was it was the biggest bet we ever made. We were a small, tiny, local family business. We bet the farm on dot-com. And it changed the trajectory of my dad and mom's life. Mm. What are the skills entrepreneurs are going to need in the future that we might not even be thinking of today? I think it's going to keep going down the emotional framework. I think compassion. Um, I think I'm obsessed with accountability. I, I will tell you that accountability is everything because it gives you stability to be able to move forward instead of the fear of being called out. Um, I think in general, content storytelling and you know, very creative. I think creativity will continue to matter more and more. I think information and math get commoditized over time with the way technology is working and art becomes inherently more powerful. And if you think about what I just said, that's what I'm saying really on the human level, that the hard skills are now the commodity and the soft skills have emerged as the importance. Every day that goes by, I believe that the emotional skills are rising, how you interact with people, how they feel about you. I think it's the emotional strength inside to have the ability to be the bigger person in every interaction because you're in a good place. I think these are the things that business owners are gonna, and entrepreneurs are going to really need to lean into more and more. Gary, you're clearly great at customer care, but how do you like to be treated as a customer? The same way I like to deliver it, which is contextually. Sometimes I want 
a lot of interaction, right? Because I'm confused. Where am I? How do I help me? I don't know how to buy jeans. Help me, right? (laughs) Other times, other times I want incredible passiveness, right? Just give me my hotel key, you know, be pleasant, give me the information, but I just took a red eye and I need a nap. And, you know, I don't need to know about every amenity and, you know, like, um, you know, and I think that's it. It's about, I want to be treated with empathy and context and somebody who's got good emotional intelligence to understand where am I at right now? And do I need heavy hands or do I need light touch? Mm. And I think all of us want that. Sometimes you want your waiter to entertain you and tell you all these funny and make you laugh and things of that nature. Other times you're in a very serious business meeting and you're anxious and you just need the information and need them to move on, right? Same thing with your package is lost and you're on the phone. Sometimes you're in the exact mood to get a joke from somebody to cut the ice and tension. Other times you've got a screaming baby in the background and you just would like to know if the package is coming today. Uh, That, you know what I mean, Kristen? That, out of all the questions you've asked and out of all the answers I've given in this podcast, that one really hit me the most. Like it's that. And And a lot of what this book is about and my argument is it's the humanity the, the best of humanity, even better, the best of humanity. It's the best of humanity that I think is going to really elevate people's businesses. Mm. My great ambition is that this book becomes super viral and people become more nice at work because of it. Gary, on that note, thank you so much. This has been so wonderful. I, I love your book. I've loved talking with you today. Thank you so much for joining us on The Relentless. Thanks for having me. Gary Vaynerchuk knows that an entrepreneurial spirit is about more than just landing the sale. It's practicing emotional intelligence, building a brand, and thinking toward the future. My next guest puts his own twist on this approach when it comes to real estate. Eddie Berenbaum is the co-founder and president of Century 21 Redwood Realty. I founded the company in 2002 and we have 15 offices serving 600 plus agents in the Washington DC area. Eddie created a digital dashboard to help his firm identify top performing agents. And he says this tool helps motivate everyone on staff to perform at a higher level. He brings passion and dedication to his work and sees challenges as opportunities for growth. That was especially true 20 years ago when Eddie and his co-founders were just starting out. They really struggled to launch the business. He spent that first year buying display ads and local papers, but no one ever called. What's really interesting when I look back at it is I had spent my entire $20,000 that I'd put in before I generated even a single lead, not before I I sold a single home, before I actually even generated a single lead. Wow. That sounds terrifying, (laughs) I got to say. (laughs) Looking back at it. Yeah, just for the first year, it's just you on your own investing pretty much like way more money than most people have in the bank. You've already put every penny in there. Everything into the company, and I failed to even generate a, a phone call. Kind of the very bottom when I got it, I was, you know, probably had spent 18 of my, my $20,000. And I was at a pizzeria Uno in a booth laying out the ad uh, that I was going to run that week, the back cover ad that I was starting to be convinced was never going to make the phone ring. And at standing at the bar, I saw a competitor and I thought to myself, holy cow, my life has come to this, but I need to get advice from someone. I was like 
just extremely dedicated to this idea that we were creating a new way to do real estate and that we were going to be totally self-learned. Uh, but thank heavens, I saw this competitor at the bar and I walked over to him and I said, hey, how you doing? I don't know if you remember me, you know, uh, but I have a question for you. I'm laying out my ad. You're in the same newspaper every week. Nobody ever calls. Can you tell me what I'm doing wrong? And he looked at my ad and he says, well, that's easy. You don't have any listings. And I said, so you're telling me if I had a, a listing, people would call me. And he said, of course, you're on the back cover every week. And so right then and there, I figured I'm just going to go out and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get listings. And I started driving around and any for sale by owner sign I saw, I just knocked on the door, held up my ad and said, I'll put you on the back cover. I don't even need a commission. I just need a listing. And this lovely family took me up on my offer. And that was my first uh, client ever. And then we've just been like a rocket ship ever since. Wow, that is scary. It, it involves a lot of daring, a lot of risk, but then also collaborating with competitors. That I, I, I'm so impressed with that. <laughs> a lot of us see competitors as people where, you know, oh, you stay on your side of the room and I'll stay on mine and never the two shall meet. But you were doing quite the opposite. Well, before I needed his advice, I probably would have taken that same mindset. So if I was going to reverse engineer the whole thing, I probably would have, you know, from day one, taken people's advice and asked, actively asked their advice. Along the same line, we spoke with Gary V earlier about the importance of practicing emotional intelligence in business. What do you think your emotional strengths and weaknesses are? Okay, so from a strength perspective, I would say it's my empathy. My empathy and my intuition have always enabled me to be a very natural salesperson. I've been able to, I was able to find success in sales at a very young age. I would say that that's also my weakness, though. In growing an organization to the size we are now, natural sales skills are very hard to teach. It's kind of one of those things that you either have or you don't. And so I've worked for the last 15 years. I kind of forget what I know naturally from a sales process. And I try to break it down into much more actionable steps that our agents can take to delight their clients and grow their business. Now, you created a dashboard to help the firm identify its top performing agents. Can you share a little bit about how that dashboard works and what inspired you to develop that? We've always prided ourselves and we've derived a lot of benefits from being an early adopter when it comes to technology. This has enabled us early on to do things ahead of other companies. But as we grew and we wanted to embrace this concept of metrics-based management, we realized that we had all these different systems that were speaking different languages and telling us different things. So the MLS told us our story in terms of sales volume. Our accounting software spoke in terms of commissions earned our transactions management system painted a picture of what our pipeline was and our CRM looked even further in advance and told us, all right, here are the leads that are coming in. Here are the, you know, here's the conversion metrics that we're looking at. This is what we think we're doing. And so there wasn't a clear path to managing the company and growing the, the company, you know, because we had all these different languages. So before we could create the dashboard, we had to build a data warehouse that basically pulls in the data from various exports and gets everything into the same language. Mm, and you're building this incrementally, getting a clear picture with these metrics. Yeah, so the version that we just came up with is this agent dashboard that tells the agents exactly where 
their business is coming from, where it's going. So it it's giving the agents this great insight that we've had for, for a couple of years. From a numbers perspective and everything you've described today, you and your partners have created clearly an incredibly successful brokerage. What advice do you have for other entrepreneurs out there who are just starting out, who are in that early phase you were when you were putting all those ads on the back of the newspapers? Number one, love what you do. Because if you don't love what you do, what's the point in doing it? And then number two, you need to understand the capacity that you have to work and you want to create a plan that is going to fit into the number of hours that you can devote to your business. So I was lucky enough to start Redwood before I had a family. So, you know, from the age of about 25 till I would estimate 37, so 12 years, I never took off more than one weekend in a given year. So I was all in working seven days a week, you know, um, during the week, Monday through Friday, growing the business on the weekend, I was advancing the sales. And and I loved what I was doing. And so probably one of the coolest things I think I have at, uh, you know, sitting here at 48 is I can look back at it. And now I'm the person that, that people appreciate because I, I get to take the time off on the weekends. I get to spend time with my kids and I've been able to build uh, an extremely stable life for myself. And if I was starting a business today, you know, my risk tolerance and my work hours would have to be, you know, dramatically different. I think it's great. If we can love what we do, uh, it makes all those hours just fly by. It's just a pleasure to do it. It doesn't feel like a sacrifice. Now, this season in the podcast, we have focused on the customer experience. How would you describe good customer service? I'd say a common thread that uh, we aim to help our agents deliver is the need to you know, be compassionate to their clients and to keep them informed and protected. So you know, buying and selling real estate is kind of a long series of stressful decisions. And we want to take ownership of those decisions, but they're not our decisions to make. I'd say the clarity of you know, how we can deliver the ultimate customer experience is providing the clients with as much clarity without being overly assumptive of what is going to be around the corner for each decision. And then taking ownership of you know, the advice that we gave them, but allowing our clients to feel that sense of ownership. So it's it's a series of of complex decisions that we have to that we have to give advice on. We have one last question. We ask this of every guest and I'd love to hear your perspective. What does relentless mean to you? You need to love what you do. You need to have a solid plan to do it and you need to never give up. That to me is what being relentless is all about. Three easy steps. We can all do that, right? <laughs> yeah. Eddie, this has been so much fun. Thank you for joining us on The Relentless today. Thank you so much for having me. The Relentless is produced by Slate Studios in partnership with Century 21 Real Estate. You can find out more about the guests you heard in today's show and discover more great material from our Century 21 partners at slate.com slash c21relentless. I'm Kristen Meinzer. Thanks so much for listening. All rights reserved. Nothing herein is intended to create an employment relationship. Century 21 Real Estate LLC fully supports the principles of the Fair Housing Act and the Equal Opportunity Act. Each office is independently owned and operated. This material may contain suggestions and best practices that you may use at your discretion. 